0: of grace. This is our ninth lesson, and this morning's lesson is taken from chapter 4 once again, and we're going to talk about God's life-giving covenant. We'll begin reading in verse 13. We left off in verse 17 last week, but I'm going back a couple of verses to reiterate and make a couple of points to you that I want to make. Let's begin reading first Romans chapter 4 beginning in verse 13 for the promise to abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law but through the righteousness of faith for if it is the adherence to the law who are to be heirs faith is null and the promise is void i think we'll have for you most of these scriptures uh, as we read through this i want to pause And read for you from the Mirror Translation, verses 13 and 14. Now, listen to this. It is again a matter of embracing a gift rather than receiving a reward for keeping the law. It is again a matter of embracing a gift rather than receiving a reward for keeping the law. Boy, that's important. So many of us believe that the Christian walk is a matter of good days and bad days where we are receiving a reward for our behavior. Selah. Which means pause. Sila. Think about it. Do you feel yourself stressing every day over whether or not you've pleased God? Do you feel yourself stressing every day over whether or not you've met the requirements? To receive the reward? Paul is saying, look, this great salvation of ours, this great promise that was made to Abraham is embraced as a gift, not received as a reward for keeping the law. I like that. Verse 14. Faith would be emptied of its substance, and the principle of the promise would be meaningless if the law of personal performance was still in play to qualify the heirs. See, that's why we need to read from different Bible translations. You may be fond of the King James, or the New King James, or the New American Standard, or the NIV, My personal preference is the English Standard Version. That's my primary Bible, the one I study out of, and the one I preach from. But there's probably 20 to 30 other translations that I will read through in terms of my text and supporting text that I will use in any given message a week in order to hear what the Holy Spirit might be saying through these various definitions and looks These different sides and angles of this incredible language that the New Testament was written in. Here it is in the English Standard. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. Mirror Translation says, faith would be emptied of its substance and the principle of promise would be meaningless if the law of personal performance was still in play to qualify the heirs. The law of personal performance. How many of us live there? How many of us live each day concerned, consumed with personal performance in order to qualify us before Almighty God? When we live according to that law, we make the promise void. God's promise to us through Abraham is void. Continuing in the English Standard Version in verse 15. For the law brings wrath. But there is no law. Where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all of his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Here's Weiss' translation of verse 16. On account of this, it is by faith in order that it might be by grace to the end that the promise might be something realized by all the offspring, not by that which is of the law only, but also by that which is of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Verse 17. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations, in the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. We says... Before God who makes alive those who are dead and calls the things that are not in existence as being in existence. I began speaking to that $4,000 last week. Said to you, I just believe we need to do this this Sunday, come on, let's just do, so in the offering and, and over, you know, you that need to think about it, pray about it, over the next week as you go home, you give online. And my faith was just $250 short. <laughs> but no, what I'm trying to point out is as we, as we call into existence what we can't see with our natural eyes. See, that's what God did. When he changed the name of Abram to Abraham, father of nations, he began speaking before the promise had actually even been realized and come into the earth, God helped Abraham and Sarah with their speaking so that they would call into existence the things that were not seen. I call this room finished and painted. I call this this. Uh, platform carpeted in the name of Jesus we don't even know who's going to do it haven't bought the carpet yet I mean we need a deal I call these chairs full of hungry hearts who want to hear the word of God and worship and be set free in the name of Jesus verse 18 in hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told so shall your offspring be He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why faith is counted to Abraham as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus Christ, or Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses, and who was raised for our justification. Such a powerful, powerful passage of Scripture. Don't you love that? So here we are. We're going to wind down, finish chapter 4, and move on to chapter 5, God willing, next week. Let's talk about this backdrop of the promise, the covenant that was made with Abraham. Keep in mind that according to the mirror translation in verse 2 of chapter 3, we read this, everything only finds its relevance and value in the original intention of God. Realized by faith. Everything only finds its relevance and value in the original intention of God realized by faith. This is why Jesus constantly went back to the book of Genesis when he had to deal with difficult theological questions or he was being bombarded by those who tried to catch him and trick him with scripture. He'd go back to Genesis and talk about God's original intent. That's what we're doing in the book of Romans. That's what we're doing here in chapter 4. And that's what we're doing with the covenant that was made to Abraham that all of you are a part of. It was God's original intent when he got with the Son, and the Holy Spirit, to include you in their circle of shared life. Jesus was not an afterthought. Jesus was not plan B. From before the universe was created, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit had purposed for you to be involved in their circle of shared life. The death of Jesus was simply part of a seamless movement that began in in eternity with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And it reached its fulfillment with the exaltation of the human race in the creation, the new creation, the new birth that Jesus brought. We also talked about how that Israel is the womb of the Incarnation. God's answer to the fall of Adam was, no, I am not going to let that ruin the dream of having all of humanity brought into relationship with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit into our circle of life. No, this that has happened is not going to stop that. So God called Abraham and he forms a nation called Israel. And then he gives to Moses the law. You with me? You tracking with me? We learned all of this last week. And leading up to chapter 4, this has all been a part of what we've been studying. God called Abraham. He formed a nation called Israel. And then he gives Moses the law. And it's like that was plan B. God really is just reacting to this fall of Adam. And so now he's got to come up with a plan B and figure out what he's going to do to uh, introduce Christ and save the world or offer salvation to those who will believe. Can you imagine God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, this wonderful Trinity, creator of the universe, almighty God, omnipresent, all-knowing, being caught off guard by what happened in the garden? Can you imagine that Jesus was simply a result of God's anger and that God forced Jesus to get on the cross to satisfy somehow this anger that God has towards what happened in the garden? I shared with you last week this little book called Jesus, the Undoing of Adam. Jesus and the Undoing of Adam by C. Baxter Kruger. One of the most profound books that I have ever read. Easy to read. You read it in an afternoon, a couple of days, whatever your speed is. Please, do yourself a favor. Much of what I am sharing about chapters 4, 5, and 6 are highlighting points that Baxter Kruger is making. I want to quote him now in regards to Israel being the womb of the Incarnation. Listen, and I quote, The law, however, was never the point. The point was God and Israel in relationship. The living God drawing near to the fallen Adamic existence in the people of Israel. The calling of Israel was not about God dispensing accurate information about Himself so that the Israelites could have a good theology. The calling of Israel was about God Himself re-entering into contact, into living fellowship and personal relationship with fallen Adam. Remember what happened in the garden. And remember how that God had to put Adam and Eve out of the garden. And a flaming cherub or a cherub with a flaming sword was there to guard it and to keep them. Why? Because had they eaten of the tree of life, they would have lived forever in their fallen state. But all along, from the foundations of the earth, before this ever happened, God already knew. God already had a plan for Jesus to come and redeem mankind. And now he implements it. He calls Abram, who gives birth to a nation. And that nation receives the law through its leader, Moses. But that law was never the point. The point was God, as He has for all of eternity, wants relationship with mankind. He will do any and everything, including no to the fall of Adam, to get back into relationship with fallen human beings. You know why? Because He loves you. God loves me. Whereas Adam and Eve hid in the bushes from God, Israel was called into fellowship with God himself. And then they tried to create a religion to keep God at a safe distance. Do you know that's what religion does? Do you know what the law really did? It just kept God at a distance. God wanted personal relationship. It was never his design to give all those laws and regulations and rules that just kept man in, steeped in religion at a distance from God. Again, I quote Baxter Kruger. This conflict between God and Israel is nothing less than the prehistory of the atonement and reconciliation, the first flashes of the impossible union between God and fallen humanity. For it was Israel, fallen Israel, in all of her alienation, who was summoned into the presence of the Lord and called to take real steps into fellowship with the true and the living God. As Israel was the womb of the incarnation, Abraham was the womb of the incarnation for the believer. We have received faith. We have received the life of Jesus that has transformed us because of Abraham's faith. Abraham dared to believe God. And remember from last week who Abraham was? He wasn't a Jehovah worshiper. He didn't even know Jehovah. He was an idol worshiper, a pagan There was nothing in his life that would lead God to choose him and pleasure him and love him and make him the leader, the one who would give birth to some three billion. Remember last week we learned Abraham actually is a spiritual father to three billion people on the earth because three different religions claim Abraham as a spiritual father. Christianity, the Hebrews, the Jewish people, and of course... Islam, which surprises many people. So what is this promise we read about? Look at it, verse 13. For the promise to Abraham, do we have that? Verse 16, that is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed. Verse 20, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. Interesting. What is this promise God gave Abraham? And why why did God choose Abraham? How did this happen, God? He was just an idol worshiper. How does Abraham actually become a womb for the incarnation of all of your plan for the entire universe? Pretty interesting, huh? He says it did not come through the law. The promise did not come come through the law if it had it would make it void look at verse 15 he says because the law introduces wrath that's all you will experience when you are caught up in do not touch not taste not handle not you can't you must not all of this moral law code that we tend as Christians to live by and think that that's what makes up Christianity And so many New Testament Christians have simply exchanged Old Testament Torah for New Testament Torah. We have learned that we're free from the law. We're no longer under the curse of the law of the Old Covenant. But now we come over to the New Testament and we make that all about rules and regulations and obedience. And Paul aggressively deals with that and says this promise, this covenant that God made with Abraham was before the law, it's during the law, it's after the law, and it has nothing to do with the law. In fact, living by the law only brings wrath. Why do you think so many Christians are steeped in this idea of hell and damnation if you don't believe the way we do? Why do you think Christians carry placards outside of the various organizations that we choose to uh, picket with slogans like, God hates fags, murderers, you're going to go to hell as we protest outside of the abortion clinic? Now, that's life-giving, isn't it? That's that's a life-giving covenant that draws people to Jesus, isn't it, as we carry our placards? Murderers, you're going to go to hell, right? Where do we get that? We get that because of the Old Testament concept of wrath and judgment, which is based on the law, but the promise God gave to Abraham has nothing to do with that. Nothing to do with that law. It was before that law, during and after that law. And that's the promise that the Bible says is ours through Jesus Christ. In fact, Paul says in our text, it rests on grace and it's guaranteed. Hmm. God has given a promise. He's made a covenant that's actually guaranteed Who guarantees it? Who guarantees that this promise is yours? Who guarantees that this promise belongs to me regardless of my behavior? Who guarantees that regardless of my sinful character, God has said, I bless you with a promise that has nothing to do with law or behavior. I'm going to give it to you on the basis of faith, just like I did Abraham, that idol worshiper, who I brought and put my hand on and called for my own purposes when he didn't even know me, didn't worship me, wasn't following me, wasn't pursuing me, wasn't looking for me. That's the same promise God's given to each of you by faith. Wow. All right. To find out about that promise, we have to go back (laughs) to the beginning, the original intent. So let's turn. Please grab your Bible. Genesis chapter 15. So what we've done now is given you a foundation for this life-giving covenant, this life-giving promise That God made with Abraham that Paul argues in chapter 4 is our promise. It belongs to me. Say, it belongs to me. The promise given to Abraham, say it with me. The promise given to Abraham belongs to me also. It does not come by law. It's been given to me by faith. All right, let's look at this. Let's look at the promise and let's look at who guaranteed this so that it would be by faith, not by your good works. So everybody say good works. Good work. How many of you did a good work this week? Okay. <laughs> did you pray? Did you read your Bible? Did you help somebody? Did you go over to your neighbors? Did you smile at somebody at the store? Were you kind? All right, all all good works. (laughs) Let me tell you something. You know that I work out at the racquetball club and that I'm there several days a week and uh, we were in the shower as these things go. I have some really Holy Spirit times (laughs) in the men's room, okay, So we are again in the men's room, as I have told you before, where some of these events happen, and there's about six different guys standing around in various uh, degrees of undress and getting ready uh, to go, and I and this other gentleman are having a conversation. Now, this is a gentleman that I have met there at the club who we've struck up a relationship with, and we've been meeting at Starbucks, and I've been mentoring him in the gospel. He's a new Christian, and uh, I've had such fun just talking to him. So uh, a a dialogue starts up where he's talking about how that uh, at a previous church he attended, um, uh, he just wasn't well treated. They weren't friendly. They weren't graceful. They really didn't help him and his wife to uh, follow God. And uh, he called them, in fact, hypocrites. He said that the church was just full of hypocrites. So I'm thinking about all this, now this is full voice, he's not like whispering this in my ear, we're not like standing next, he's across the way from me at a completely different locker, I'm across the way from him getting dressed and he's having this conversation with me in the midst of six or seven other guys and he's full voice with it. So I'm thinking, well Lord, what an opportunity, I've got a captive audience here, how would you like me to respond? to this gentleman sort of berating his former church and, and that it was filled with a bunch of hypocrites and then this inspiration came I remembered Romans 4 I remembered our lesson and I said you know what isn't it awesome that your good works have nothing to do with you going to heaven And his mouth, and I said it full voice, I know everybody in the locker room heard me. He said, what? And I said, you're Bible reading, you're going to church, you're singing in the choir, all of these good works that you do now at your new church that you're attached to, you know none of that matters at all in you going to heaven? And he said, how can that be? I, I can't get my arms around that. And I said, we'll talk Thursday, because we already had a date for Thursday at Starbucks. I'm thinking of a new series titled, Conversations at Starbucks. (laughs) That might be a part B, Conversations in the Locker Room, my wife says. (laughs) people really do not understand the very foundations of Christianity even Christians who go to church every week do not understand i told him when i met on thursday i said you know because we circled around i came back to this i brought this conversation up and i said you know when i when you were talking in this way and then i said what i said your mouth dropped open And you literally, verbatim, quote, said, I don't understand that. I have to get my arms around that. I said, do you understand that this is the very foundation of Christianity? If you don't get this, you don't have it. You will just live by law code all of your Christian experience. That's what we're looking at here in chapter 15 of Genesis. We're going back to God's original intention and why he made the promise he made to Abraham, our spiritual father, and the father of faith, by the way. Verse 1, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. His name hadn't been changed yet. your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said look toward heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he said to him I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans that's where he was an idol worshipper to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? Have you ever asked that about something you've read in the Bible? Have you ever watched somebody else's life or Christianity and said, Boy, I sure would like to experience that or have that in my life. And they tell you something kind of almost flippantly Well, you just need to believe the Lord. You just need to find the promise in the Bible and believe it for yourself. And have you ever responded with this, at least in your thoughts? But how shall I know I shall possess it? Isn't that human? How will I know I'm going to possess it? And God said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, and a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all of these, and he cut them in half, and he laid each of them over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, "'Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they, that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions.'" As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall, not, you shall be buried at a good and old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Verse 17. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between those pieces. On that day, the Lord... Made a covenant with Abram saying to your offspring, I give this land and so on and so forth. And he goes on and continues the promise. Now here's the deal. Watch. Maybe I can come up here and do this. Back in those days when they would cut covenant, there had to be a shedding of blood. What we just read was a very typical kind of covenant. Sacrificing animals as part of a covenant was not new. That was not new for the, to the Jewish people, by the way. That was not born with the Jewish nation. That was cultural in the time. Many different nations practiced blood sacrifice and sacrificing animals. So God used something that Abram was already familiar with culturally to speak to him. So watch this. He tells him the animals that he's to bring. Abram cuts those animals and puts half here and half here. He cuts the next one here and here. And the third one here and here. And then the birds, he doesn't cut or sever. And he puts them out. Creating a pathway to walk between. Because the type of covenant that God was about to cut With Abram was a covenant where you would put the halves of the animals that had been sacrificed, and then you would walk through it. it, This was cultural. If you were cutting a covenant, maybe even a business agreement back in that day with somebody, you would grab their hand, and you would walk through in this path between those severed animals. You'd walk together through it. Signifying that you were in agreement, this covenant, this agreement, this promise was absolute and you would both abide by it. Now, did you notice something interesting happens here to Abram? What happens to him? He falls asleep. He's not awake. You say, oh, well, some translations say he was just drowsy. Or I've read in certain commentaries where he was just drowsy, but he, he came back enough that he could walk through the animals. Really? Actually, no. It's the Hebrew word tadama, which is used only seven times in seven verses in all of the Bible, all Hebrew. For instance, it's used in Genesis chapter 2. See if you recognize this use of it. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. And God took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. Remember that one? Now, that was a surgery that God did on Adam. You suppose he was just drowsy? (laughs) No, God put him to sleep. Why? He didn't want him messing things up. He didn't want him having any opinion in what he was going to create called, Whoa, man. (laughs) Whoa, glorious. That's what Adam said when he first saw her. Oh, thank you, Father. That's what he said. And to do that, God had to put him to sleep, else Adam would have messed with it. Here's another use of that word. 1 Samuel chapter 26, verse 12. So David took the spear and the cruise of water from Saul's bolster. And they gat them away. This is King James, obviously. And no man saw it, nor knew it, neither awaked. Listen. For they were all asleep. That's the word "tardema." They were all asleep because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen on them. The word's only used seven times, and every time it's used, it means you are out. You are so out, God can do an operation. You are so out that people can walk right out of your camp and none of the guards even notice. That's how asleep Abram was when God had him prepare this promise, this covenant. Now, what else do we read? What happens? It's dark. Abram's asleep. And all of a sudden, a torch. And what else? Come on, help me out. A smoking pot. Does that remind you of anything that you've read in the Old Testament? Now, this is not talking about Mile High City, Colorado, you know, (laughs) the smoking pot. This is talking about, remember, God, when he led the children of Israel out of Egypt, he led them by a pillar of cloud during the day and a what? Pillar of fire at night. Who was that? Same Holy Spirit. God the Father. God the Son. God the Holy Spirit. They're involved in this promise. This isn't God off by himself. Just making some wild hair. You know promise to an idol worshiper. That he can't keep. This was the plan of God. Abram was becoming the womb for the incarnation of every believer who would believe on God in faith. And so the Holy Spirit comes as a cloud and a fire, and he walks through the pieces. Abraham's asleep. Who did God make the covenant with? Himself. Himself. Because why? The Scripture says, because he could swear By no one greater. God made an arbitrary covenant. So great. That he put the other party to sleep. So that he couldn't mess anything up. And he said. This promise. Is so great. So universally globally changing. For the universe and all of the earth. And all of mankind. That I'm going to take Abraham out of it. I'm going to make it with myself. I promise you. I promise you. And I'm going to guarantee it by myself. Woo, glory. (laughs) Yes. That's why Paul argues. It is not by the law. This promise that God gave to Abraham, it's not by the law. It's by faith. If you try to live out the promises of God based on obedience and adherence to law and moral code, you will will experience such a void in your Christianity. You will be so hungry. And unfortunately, most Christians just sort of fall into this trap of the judgmental, wrathful God that we see in the Old Testament. And they believe that's how He is today, even after Jesus has come. Let's go back to verse 17. Look with me in our text. Do you see it there? Can we put it up, Jerry? Verse 17. Before God, who makes alive those who are dead... And calls things that are not into existence. Or excuse me. Things that are not in existence as being in existence. Watch this. Verse 17 from the Weiss translation. Before God who makes alive those who are dead. That's a prophecy dear ones. That God would raise Jesus From the dead. Is it any wonder then that the Bible says that Jesus is the firstborn among brothers. Many brothers. He's the firstborn from among the dead. Romans chapter 8 verse 29. Message really gets it right. The message translation. Listen. God knew what he was doing from the very beginning. He decided from the outset to shape the lives of those who love Him along the same lines as the life of His Son. The Son stands first in the line of humanity that He restored. Jesus became a man. He died the death that we were destined to die. And then God raised him from the dead for you and me and cut a covenant swearing by himself that the same new birth is available to every human being, not based on your behavior, not based on moral law code, but simply based on you believing that what Jesus did satisfies every requirement. For you to come to know God and to live in his presence every day. Just like Adam and Eve had it. In fact, even better. We have been reconciled into the sphere of fellowship that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have together in their love triangle. You must sit up. Pay attention, shake yourself if you're falling asleep. Whatever you need to do, please listen to this quote. Jerry, I think we'll, or uh, Sam, I think we'll have this on the screen so that you can read along. This is from Baxter Kruger's book, Jesus and the Undoing of Adam. Listen, quote, The ascension means that now and forever a human being, a Jew, a son of Adam, is face to face with the Father now and forever, one from among or one from the foreign world of Adam lives in fellowship, indeed in utter union with God the Father, sharing all things with the Father in the unrestrained fellowship of the Spirit. Sitting at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, is the exact opposite of hiding in the bushes in the Garden of Eden. It is the exact opposite of Israel running from God and of religion. This is the ascension that preaches to us that here in Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son of God, the fall of Adam and Eve has been undone. The Adamic existence has been thoroughly converted to God, fundamentally reordered into right relationship with God. And all of this happened before the foundation of the universe. It is not plan B, it was His plan all along. You say, you know, I, I've been able to go most, most of the places with you here in this study of Romans, but Jeff, I'm unhooking right there. I'm just unhooking right there that, that this is not a plan B, that somehow God had all of this plan before I was a twinkle in my mother's eye, before any of us drew breath, before the earth was, or universe was created. All right, let's go. Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. I'm reading from the Wees translation. Samuel will have it up on the screen for you. May the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ be eulogized. The one who conferred benefactions upon us. In the sphere of every spiritual blessing. In the heavenly places in Christ. Verse 4. Even as he has selected us out Remember what he did for Abram. It's the same thing he did for Abram. He has selected us out for himself in him before the foundations of the universe were laid to be holy ones and without blemish before his searching, penetrating gaze. In love, verse 5, having previously marked us out to be placed as adult sons through the intermediate agency of Jesus Christ for himself, according to that which seemed good to his heart's desire. I told you, God has been chasing you. When Adam fell, God yelled throughout the universe and eternity, no! My dream to have humanity one with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit will not be stopped. Jesus, Jesus of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Jesus the Son is going to come down and become a human being. Die the death of fallen Adam. And God, through a covenant, made by himself, with himself, is going to raise Jesus from the dead. And then it's God's faith that sees you in Jesus. See, we we think we've done pretty good because we've accepted the Lord. I've accepted, I've become a Christian. You need to be one too. No, really, you got that totally backwards. Before you ever knew God loved God we're seeking God the scripture says he was pursuing and seeking you while we were yet in our sins Christ died for us why because God by faith saw every one of you as you would be and he called you he placed you His heart's desire was to know you, to fellowship with you, to put his arms around you and love you, to give you life and life more abundantly. And he said, I will not be without you. And by faith, he sees you in Jesus. And he calls you back to life. Verse 17, God who calls back to life those who are dead, calls back into existence those things that are not in existence. And he did it all through a promise. And by the way, the promise is guaranteed. It doesn't depend on you. Now look, if you're going to live in the Old Covenant, you're going to be disappointed because in the Old Covenant it was all about self-righteousness. But in the New Covenant, it is all about Jesus' righteousness. I am not righteous because of me. I am righteous because of what Jesus did. But I am now made the righteousness of God in Christ. <laughs> you've got to live in the new covenant. And when you read the old, you've got to read it through the lens of the new or you will see God as a whole another judgmental wrathful God that wants to destroy and catch you. Just wait. He just waits to catch you doing something wrong so that he can Do something to you, discipline you, make you feel something for what you did bad. So, Paul says, God's promises to us are sure. I see my time is up. Paul closes chapter 4 by saying Abraham did not vacillate at the promise of God. In view of the promise of God, he did not vacillate in the sphere of unbelief between two mutually exclusive expectations. Aramaic translation says Abraham was not divided in the royal proclamation of God's promise. Francois Dutois says it this way. His resurrection is the receipt for our acquittal. Hallelujah. Verse 25 of chapter 4 is one of the most important statements in all of the Bible. It's very simple. Here's the equation. His cross, our sins. His resurrection, our redeemed innocence. We are one with the Father. Would you take out a piece of paper and write these three things down as an application for this week that I want you to pray about? Very simple. Just make a note. Take out a piece of paper, would you? This week, in your prayers, I want you to write down a promise. Number one, write down a promise that you feel that God has made to you or that you've taken to the Lord and asked him for based on the Word of God, the Bible. Are you writing? You might want to write it down right now as you're writing. Maybe you know a promise. Maybe you need to think about it a little bit. Write down a promise that you feel that God has made to you, but you haven't seen it come to pass yet. Number two, the Bible says that against hope, Abraham believed in hope. Why? Because he was a hundred years old. Sarah was over 90. They were way past the ability to fulfill this promise in themselves. So, against hope, he believed in the word of God and did not vacillate. So, if necessary and even against hope, I want you to declare that unseen thing as done and present reality. That's number two. Against hope and if necessary, declare that unseen thing as present reality. Against hope if necessary, I should say. Even against hope, it might seem impossible, this promise that you wrote down in number one. And so, if necessary, against all hope, you start speaking like Abram did. God's blessed me. My name is Abraham, father of nations. Father of nations. I'm going to father nations. Three billion people. Abraham is a spiritual father, too today because he simply be an idol worshiper nothing special god placed his hand on him and you are in adam you are in jesus god made this promise to abram's seed which is jesus we'll we'll go there some point as we continue through romans here and and we'll combine galatians chapter three with this number three number three now refuse to go back and worry Refuse to speak anything opposite than what you're saying in, in number two. If necessary, change your name to align with what God has said. Let me give you an example of this. A dear brother in my life, he actually is the senior apostolic oversight to this church, and you know him as Earl Johnson, dear friend, dear man of God, known him for 30 years now, got cancer. About, was it eight years ago? Maybe ten years ago? Some of you remember that. Because he came here and taught when he had it. Here's what the Lord had him do in relationship to number two and three that I'm giving you right now. The Lord said, Earl, refuse to acknowledge with your mouth even the name of cancer. Refuse to acknowledge even the name of cancer. And Earl said, Well, so when I'm just like sharing with my, my brothers and my sisters or I'm asking for prayer, what do, what do I call it? Lord said, Call it Uma, Sa- Uma Gala Salawala. You heard him say that. Yeah, call it Uma Gala Salawala. I was with Earl over the course of a number of years, and never again from his lips. Did he ever refer to his cancer by the name cancer? He often had to bring it up, refer to it, ask for prayer. But never again did he call it cancer. Now, you might think this is hocus pocus, but I'm telling you, it's Bible. It's why God changed the name of Sarai to Sarah and Abram to Abraham. It's why it says that God calls those things that are not as though they are. Because we participate in the miracle of God with our mouth when we receive the promise, knowing He's guaranteed it by His own self. But now we have to prepare that soil of our heart with the words of our mouth and refuse to speak opposite of what He has promised us. Number one, write down your promise. Number two, Against hope, if necessary, declare that unseen thing as present reality now in your life, in the name of Jesus. Earl, begin to speak. I receive my healing. I am whole. This Umagala sama, uma Samawala has no power over me. This Umagala wala has no place in my. B-. I, w- I would hear him say this. We 'd be in meetings, we'd be in times of prayer. We'd be on the phone. And he never once let up and called it cancer. I'd say, how are you doing? What's the most recent diagnosis of this thing? And he says, well, the doctor says that my Umagala Salawala is here or there. Why? Because he refused to give it a name that would have power over his thoughts and the promise that God had made that in the atonement, Jesus had healed him. Last will